Hey, this morning we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 16, verses 4 through 15. So you can begin to make your way there. The last Sunday of every month, we have an opportunity to journey through the gospel of John. Um, so our kids get, in some sense, uh, those that join us for Family Sunday, <clears throat> get an opportunity to journey through a separate book with us. And so we uh, detour from 1 Corinthians and then come over and uh, study in the gospel of John. We've been doing that for a while now. Now, in, in the gospel of John, kind of where Jesus has us and where he's moving through, He's been, prepe- uh, been prepping, preparing the disciples for life in his absence. And so they've been traveling with Jesus for a couple of years, and he's moving in their hearts and wants them to be ready for what it's going to be like when Jesus isn't there, what it's going to be like when they have a question, they can't turn, uh, hey, Jesus, you explained this parable, <clears throat> but if you could just kind of go over it one more time for Peter, and, and I'll make sure he understands it, that'd be really helpful. And so they're not going to have that opportunity anymore. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's preparing to leave. He's preparing to depart. And so he wants them to understand the character and the nature of of who this Holy Spirit is. Now, within our context and kind of conservative um, evangelical circles, what we see is not not a disdain, kind of this open hatred for the Holy Spirit, but certainly there's an air of of just kind of lack of familiarity, right? And, and I think you see this in a lot of, of more conservative churches. And, and so what more conservative churches would say is, is the Bible is good enough for us if the Holy Spirit would just kind of stay over there, you know, or just kind of in, inside here if they're going to be a little more accurate. But, you know, just not do anything wild and crazy. That would be great because we've just got all the revelation we can handle. We've got all the Bible we can handle. It, it just makes us uncomfortable because we look across the aisle as kind of conservative whatever. And, and we look over here and we just see... Pentecostals, and we just say, well, that just makes me uncomfortable. Like, somebody might ask me to clap on rhythm or dance, and, and oh, man, I just don't think I could handle that. I just don't think I could handle that. Or, you know, you see uh, just kind of televangelists who are going out and, and hawking money and sending prayer mats or rugs or selling things, and we say, oh, that, that's an abuse, and I would agree that that's, a, that's an abuse. But where many of us as kind of conservatives go wrong is a complete lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. It's a complete lack of dependence. And so we live our lives in this, I'm just going to be faithful, I'm going to read my Bible well, and, and I'm just going to be obedient to God in all things. But we see no need for dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, in, in Jesus' understanding of kind of how these uh, things are going to work out, there is no way to faithfully live the Christian life without being fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit. This is his whole point. Like, I'm leaving you, and the thing that I'm going to give to you, the person that I'm going to send to you to help you remain faithful, to help you interpret his word, to help you to live by his word, isn't a feeling, it's not an experience, it's not some unction, it is God within you, it is my Holy Spirit. So he wants them to understand, and we desperately need to understand the character and the nature of the Holy Spirit. So John's going to spill it in three things. He's going to say there's a ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Word. There's a ministry of the Holy Spirit to the Christian. And then there's this inner Trinitarian manifestation and dwelling in perfect harmony of the Holy Spirit that we should mirror, that we should follow with. And so let's follow Jesus' argument in this discussion as recorded here in John. Starting in the latter half of verse 4, he said, I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and, and none of you asked me, where are you going? 
But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is setting up for the disciples and prepping them for his departure and so recognize that these things haven't been important for Jesus to tell them. They haven't been necessary for them to hear because he's been with them and he's been able to communicate these things to them while he's been there with them. And so he turns to the disciples and he wants them to understand in verse 5. And he, so he says, but I tell you that I'm going away and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, if you're reading through the Gospel of John, you're going to find out that, that Thomas and Peter have both asked Jesus at various times, where are you going? Like, what's going on? But the, the tenor of their questions seems very much to be, um, like, where are you going physically? Like, you're, you say you're going to this place. Can we go to this place with you? You say you're going, uh, like, it's just like Jerusalem that you're talking about. So what's Jesus, what Jesus is getting at here in this statement is he wants them to understand the deeper significance, deeper significance of his departure. Not merely that he's leaving Greenville and driving down to Lone Oak and he's going to go grab a burger, but that he is leaving earth that he has been about this mission, that he's been about this plan and this purpose, and he's preparing to see it through to the end. And so he wants them to understand that in some sense they're missing the deeper spiritual significance of his actions. They're missing the deeper spiritual significance of what he's getting ready to do. But when he looks at them and, and addresses them as brothers and addresses them as men and women who have followed him, he sees that primarily they're not responding in the way that he would hope. Now, this is kind of this paradoxical understanding for us. This is kind of this, this just doesn't quite make sense. Imagine that you had this terrific friend and this mentor, and they spent all this time with you, all this time investing in you and correcting you and rebuking you and encouraging you, and all of a sudden they come to you one, one day and say, hey, look, all this is coming to an end. I'm leaving. You're not going to see me anymore. What is your natural response? Sorrow. You're sad because this person who's invested in you, this person who has ministered to you, this person who, who's seen you kind of move from, from the early beginnings of whatever discipline you're engaged in to being more mature and, and, and steady in your, in your disciplines and in your actions and in your work, this person has said they're no longer going to be there for you. And so naturally, we, we would expect on a human level that the disciples are sorrowful at Jesus' departure. And so he sees that in them. He sees their sorrow. He says, I've said these things to you, and now grief has pervaded. It has taken over your heart. But we notice this, that the departure of Jesus is never meant to engender or to create sadness. It's always meant to create in our hearts joy and gladness. Why is that? It's because of the purpose of his departure. Jesus' time spent ministering with and to the disciples was preparatory. It was not an end. And his leaving is to the end of the Holy Spirit coming. 
So he, I said these things to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. And so he has to transition to make them understand that there should be gladness in the place of sorrow, that there should be a sense of expectation in the sense of fear. So verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, even though you're sorrow, sorrowful, even though you're overcome with grief, in essence, it's to your advantage that I go away. All the time, I'll be talking to people like, man, if I just had an opportunity to be one of those disciples, to kind of walk with Jesus, and just to hear him, and just to ask him some of these questions, these longing, pestering questions that I have. But I want you to understand that Jesus, when he turns to the disciples, he says, you need to understand the ministry I've had with y'all for the last three plus years will be greatly enhanced, and you will benefit more by my absence than my presence. And he says the same thing to us. He says the same thing to you, that you sit in a privileged position according to the unfolding narrative and the salvation outworking of our God. It's to our advantage that Jesus went away. But, but, but notice this. <clears throat> he says, if I don't go away, uh, then the helper cannot come to you. But if I go away, the helper will come. I'll send him to you. So what's Jesus talking about? What's he communicating in, in terms of going away? He's not mentioning simply the, the kind of separation of this friend group, saying, look, I can't hang out with you guys anymore. If I don't hang out with you guys anymore, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And he's not talking about the, the fact that, that he and the Holy Spirit can't occupy the same place at the same time. When Jesus says, I have to go away, these are all the things that he has in mind. Jesus has to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Jesus has to serve as the atoning sacrifice of sin. So imagine that Jesus just disappears and the disciples can't find him. And, and, and then they begin to think on the things that he's taught them. And so they would, they would do okay for a little while. They would, they would bicker and complain and argue about what exactly he meant. But, but, but they'd be okay for a little while. But you see, he doesn't leave them wandering. He doesn't leave them leaderless. His departure for the cross prepares them for the ministry to the world. And in heading to the cross, this idea of going away, in heading to the cross, Jesus takes on all the sin of the disciples, all the sin of those who cried crucify him, and all the sin of every man, woman, and child from that point in history to today and on into the future. And so he takes that sin on his person. He suffers your punishment. He suffers your, suffers your penalty. He suffers your rejection of God. He suffers what should have been your rejection of from God. He takes all that upon himself so that taking the atonement on himself, he can send the Holy Spirit to come and to indwell and to live inside the believer. Now, this is something that the Old Testament, you can see it in Joel, you can see it in Isaiah, and really carefully, you can see it in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27, just kind of this coming of the Holy Spirit being foretold. He says, I will... Uh, take from the nations and gather from you all the countries and bring them into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Listen to this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see in Jesus' absence, in his departure, the beautiful coming of the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete, the advocate for us. And that the Spirit coming in us 
is able to reside in us on the basis of the good work of Jesus in the atonement, taking our sins, taking our shame, taking the punishment, the wrath of God that should have found its, its home on me. It should have found its home on you. But it finds its place of rest in the person of Jesus. And we find our covering, our forgiveness, as we place our faith and trust in him. So Jesus is kind of describing his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then 8 through 11, he's going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world. He says, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Notice, first of all, when Jesus has this commentary on this, he doesn't speak of the Holy Spirit as some abstract thing or force, right? He personalizes the Holy Spirit. So he wants us to understand that the Holy Spirit is not something remote, distant, or abstract. He refers in, in, and he gives this, this pronoun of he because he wants us to understand that we are able to relate to the Holy Spirit as a personal being. But as a personal being, the Holy Spirit has a specific work in the world. Now, when he writes and he's describing the world, he's talking about in this uh, 8 through 11, he's talking about people that do not know God. And so he says the Holy Spirit is going to come to convict. No, this is in essence what he's going to do. He's going to not merely come to them and say, look, you have this list of things that you're doing wrong and you need to do them better. You need to do them right. You know, this is how you and I tend to raise our kids, right? And so we find our kids uh, doing things that, that aren't, aren't right, they're not perfect, and so we correct them, we train them, because we want them to no longer go to the bathroom in their pants, and we want them to no longer break expensive things, and we, we want them to do the right things, and we want them to be a good, upstanding member of society. But there's this false notion that this is primarily the work that the Holy Spirit is engaged in. No, and this isn't it. The Holy Spirit wants to convict. It wants to lead the world to an undeniable understanding of the rightness of God and the existence of his son Jesus. Now look at how he begins to kind of describe the actions and how this is going to come about. He wants to convict the world concerning sin. Why, verse 9? It says, because they do not believe in me. And so he recognizes not primarily moral failure that the Holy Spirit is concerned concerned with. Now when you and I Uh, see lostness in the world. We see lostness articulated in a variety of different ways. So we see lawlessness. We see people break the law. We see people lie. We see people cheat. We see people commit murder, do all kinds of heinous things. And and if I were to ask you, do you enjoy these things? Do you want to leave these things alone? You say, no. I want to see these things come to an end. But where we head in the wrong direction is this failure to understand that the Holy Spirit, for the lost person, is not primarily interested in moral change. It's not primarily interested in making a lost person moral. It's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig, right? And so it it does ultimately nothing to change the fact that it is still a pig. Imagine if the Holy Spirit had come to you and said, "Uh, listen here, Ron, I want you to be a a, a good person. I want you to be a kind person. I want you to be a person that everybody in the community loves. And that actually came to be true of him, that he's a good person, a lovable person, that if somebody said, do you know Ron? And you're like, dadgummit, he's the nicest person I've ever met. 
Ron, right? You know Ron? And they know, yeah, absolutely. He's the nicest person I've ever met. But Ron didn't know Jesus. Ron lived his whole life doing amazing things for people and, and giving the shirt off of his back and, 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 and bailing people out and doing all of these amazingly wonderful things. But at Ron's funeral, somebody who, who's kind of hearing all these stories about what an amazing person of Ron is, just turns and they ask a question that they're a little bit curious about. And they say, let me ask you a question. And, and, and they think asking straight away, is he a believer, is a little bit on the nose. And they say, what church did Ron go to? And, and they say, oh, you know, Ron really didn't go to church. Oh, he had like a home church? That he, he probably pastored like 15 churches in Zaire, right? No, you know, Ron didn't believe in Jesus. You come to understand Ron was a good man. Ron did amazing things, and we can't take those things away from him. But what primarily the work of the Holy Spirit is, isn't leading Ron to be a better person. It's not leading Diane to be a better person. It's not leading Fran to be a better person. Primarily, the work of the Holy Spirit is leading Ron to be a person who believes in Jesus. And that's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit's doing. Notice, too, that's not my job. That's not your job. And we're going to get into the application of that at the end. But my job is not to convict lost people to believe in Jesus. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can and will produce lasting and eternal life change. The Holy Spirit leads the lost person to recognize that Jesus is real and they must believe in him. Failure to believe in Jesus. Failure to believe that he is the son of God. Failure to believe that he's atoned for your sin. Failure to believe that, that God loves you and he loves you primarily through the sacrifice of his son. And failure to believe that he rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins. Failure to believe these things leaves you lost. It leaves you without a sin covering. It leaves you far and removed from God, and it leaves the wrath of God coming for you in your death. The Holy Spirit is probing and pulling at your heart and asking you to believe in Jesus, but he will convict you regarding your disbelief. He says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now, within Jesus' day, there was this wild understanding among the Pharisees, the scribes, and others that they were manifesting and displaying God's righteousness in doing the right thing. And, and I would argue that we tend to see the same things today, right? And so we see a lot of people that are very religious. They're very dedicated to church. They're very dedicated to their mission. And they base their uh, understanding of righteousness, their right standing with God, on the basis of their actions. Now, Isaiah had this really stunning rebuke uh, uh, regarding those that think this and, and, and really kind of what all of our righteous deeds are. He says, we've all become like uh, one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are this, as Isaiah talks about it, <clears throat> we have received all the wrath 
of God coming towards us because the best we can amount to is to be a polluted garment. And it's this grotesque image that he uses there. And so we begin to understand, like, how do we see the righteousness of God? How does that work, and how do we understand it? Well, God most beautifully displays his righteousness in the person of Jesus. In Romans 3, in Romans 3, verses 21 and 22, it says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So God displays his righteousness not in the Decalogue, not in the ceremonial law. He's displayed it apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God who through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. Faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. We can become righteous if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And apart from Jesus, there is no righteousness. And Paul goes on in Romans 10, verses 2 through 4, he says, For I bear them witness, speaking of the Jews, of the Israelites, he says that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. If you fail to submit to Jesus, your righteousness is empty. Your righteousness is invalid, and your righteousness is nothing but moral goodness. It's only our identification with Jesus, which in verse 4 he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So in coming to salvation, we have this, this dawning understanding that we don't present our righteous good deeds as this kind of vita or resume before God, all of our homework finished and completed before God, to say, look at all the things I did for you. In coming to Jesus, we say, look at all the things I did to you. Look at the cross I hung you on and forgive me. And he does. And he forgives you. It's not our righteousness. Titus 3.5 said he didn't save us on, on the basis of our good works, but according to his mercy. God has lavished his mercy upon us, and he's displayed his righteousness in the person of Jesus. And he prompts us to respond. Prompts you more than to be moved, more than to be saddened, more than to be grieved. He prompts you to cry out for salvation. Say, God, would you save me? Would you change me? Could that I would be forgiven by you in Jesus? And he says, lastly, he says, he's here to convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The Bible describes Satan as being the ruler of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers so that they couldn't see and seeing respond to God. And so terra firma, kind of earth, where we dwell, where we live, there is this epic spiritual battle going on. And this spiritual battle largely exists not for the ultimate power of the universe because God has settled once and for all where the power in the universe rests and it rests with him and victory is settled in him. But this battle being spelled out today, the rest of this day, the rest of this year until Christ returns, this battle exists and is raging over your soul. There's a battle being waged over your soul today, and the God of this world has, has a claim for you, and he wants you, and he wants you to suffer all eternity with him and be far and removed from the love of God. 
but God has loved you and has sent his son to suffer and die for you and is using his Holy Spirit to awaken you. And so today, if you feel the inclination of moving towards Jesus, recognize this. This is not goodness in you responding to goodness in him. This is his Holy Spirit pulling through the muck and the mire of your life, reaching in and vivifying and making alive your heart and calling you to response. And he calls all of us to response. And all of us, every single one of us, will face the judgment. There's no escaping of it. And in the judgment of God, as we stand before him, we have only one word to be vindicated. We have only one word to be set free, and that word is Jesus. It's not look at all the good I did. It's not look at all the wealth I gave away. It's not look at all the people I told. Look at all the bad things I didn't do. Look at all the suppression of evil that I existed for. The only thing that vindicates us, the only thing that sets us right, the only thing that sets us free, the only thing that sees us forgiven is Jesus. Jesus the Lamb of God in John 1, who is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Jesus, the personification, the living vivification. Jesus, the righteousness of God displayed and manifested and walked on the earth and took the punishment of God. Jesus, the only one righteous. Jesus, the only one worthy to condemn the ruler of this world. Jesus is who we're called to believe in. So he turns to the Christian. So if that's the Holy Spirit's ministry to the world, if that's what he's doing, if that's what he's engaging in, <clears throat> what does he do for you and I after we respond to Jesus? So he turns to the disciples and he says, I have many things to say to you now, but you can't bear them. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. <clears throat> now, John 14, 6, it told us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. So effectively, what he's saying is the Holy Spirit is going to guide you in what it looks like to live for me, to live for Jesus. And so after you come to know Jesus, this is the primary role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Yes, the Holy Spirit works to make sure that when you take something that doesn't belong to you, that he works in your life to produce conviction. But the primary role of conviction of the Holy Spirit is to point towards the necessity of belief in Jesus. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? He's doing a couple of things. One is he is illumining when you read God's word as a Christian. It is decidedly different than reading it as a non-Christian. A non-Christian can read God's word and be encouraged and, and, and take things in it and apply them to their life. But as a Christian reads the word of God, the Holy Spirit is working in your life to illumine, to give greater light and insight to the text, and to take that text and to apply it to your lives. And this is why Bible reading is so incredibly important for the Christian. Because you're giving God an outlet for the Holy Spirit to work and speak and apply his word to your life. And this is why scripture memory is helpful. Because in those situations, the Holy Spirit's not just drumming up and having a casual conversation with you, but he's reminding you of the truth of God's word in those moments that he's already said, and he's applying it particularly in the midst of your scenario. The Holy Spirit is leading and guiding us. 
Over and over again, I find people in the midst of making decisions that they just don't know which way to go. They say, do I turn to the left, or I go right, or do I stay straight, or do I just stay in the middle of the road? I'm like, well, staying in the middle of the road's a bad idea. It's a good place to get run over. And so use my wisdom from God to tell you to get out of the stinking road. But once they make it to the safety and security of the sidewalk, they're like, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what career to choose. I don't know whether to have children or not. I don't know, I don't know which way to go. Do I stay in Greenville? Do I move? Do I move? Do I come back to Greenville? Do I go to the mission field? How, what do I do? I'm going to tell you this really quickly. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I will give some of you terrible advice. Not out, of a, not out of a desire to see you make a fool of yourself, but just my advice is not flawless. Uh, for the two or three of you that I told that it was, it still is. Because <clears throat> you don't listen anyway. But, but recognize this. God has given every Christian this, this amazing guide internally. And we're failing to tap into this reality. Now, God will not lead you under the providence of the Holy Spirit in the direction to something that is contrary to his word, and it is helpful when you come under conviction to turn to your brothers and sisters and say, I have this crazy thing, like I've been praying and asking God to speak to me, and lo and behold, I finally shut up, and he did, and, and you're never going to believe what he said to me. He told me I should do this, that, or whatever. He told me I should talk to this person, that person, this person. He told me I should go on this trip. He told me I should do this with my money. He told me I should do this with my time. You know what? He told me to quit cussing. I'm like, well, the Bible says that. I could have told you that a long time ago, but you wouldn't listen. And so we find that the Holy Spirit, the the greater elements of our life, the increasing masses of our life that we surrender to him, he moves in and he invades those spaces. And he can transform our lives. And he can transform the lives of those around us if we live lives in submission to him. But you can live your life as a Christian and not submit to him. You can live your life as a Christian completely powerless, completely devoid of of any type of potency to your life. And within the U.S., uh, there's a healthy number of us that this is the life that we're, we're content to live. We are indwelt by the Spirit, but we are not empowered to do anything. We are safe Christians. We, we are faithful Christians. We attend church, but I would tell you that you're not an empowered Christian because you're not living under the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's what Acts is talking about either. But I'm talking about a life lived in dependence instead of a life lived independently. So we want to be those who are living lives under the direction, the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now look at what he talks about in verses 14 and 15. He talks about the inner harmony of the Trinity. Now this is beautiful. Let's not miss it. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. <clears throat> now primarily what I want us to take away from this verse is that this transition of the relationship from Jesus' direct involvement to the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives. Jesus isn't sitting back jealously thinking, man, don't ruin it, Holy Spirit. Like, I spent three years with these guys. Don't ruin it. You gotta watch Peter. Like, watch him, watch him. Like, he, I mean, just every time you turn around, you're like, Pete, come on. Thomas is gonna doubt a little bit. It's okay, he's gonna come back and be real solid. That's not what Jesus is doing. 
There is no jealousy in the Godhead. And so what we see is the Holy Spirit comes in in his role, in his desire, in his job, is to turn around and to glorify Jesus, to point the disciples back to Jesus, to point us back to Jesus. And Jesus said that his role in John, uh, back in John 12, 28, was to glorify the Father. He says, I've been faithful to do all the Father has given to me. So Jesus' job is to glorify the Father. The Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. And they all had this beautiful dance glorifying one another. Now, if the church is primarily the body of Christ, and we take our leaf from its head, Jesus, then we are a group of people who live not to glorify ourselves, but who live to glorify him, who live to glorify God the Father. So what does this mean for our churches? This means that for our churches, we're not a group of people who live in competition with any other gathered body of believers. We are a group of people who intercede for them. We're a group of people who are jealous for them, not of them. We're jealous for them. We want them to have a greater encounter and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit than we do. That's why we repeatedly pray for them. And that's why our hearts are broken today over one of them whose pastor has died. Because their loss is our loss. Their victory is our victory. Because we are all on the same page and we're all leaning forward and we're all headed in the same direction. And if we're going to be faithful to God, if we're going to be faithful to his word, then the inner harmony of the Trinity has to become our inner harmony. And the inner desire to glorify in the Trinity has to become our inner desire to glorify. And this is something we can do. And this is something we must do. So let me just hit you with a, with a couple of takeaways and reminders. If we're going to be a church that is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, then, then what becomes, if, if 8 through 11 is primarily the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, then what does it look like for us to invest in that, to lean forward and be involved with that? Notice this, first takeaway, it's not to convict the world. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> convincing somebody of their lostness is the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes he's going to do that through your words, your gospel presentation. In the midst of your gospel presentation, talking about the goodness of Jesus, living a bold testimony of Jesus, the beauty of his gospel, in the midst of this, sometimes he will convict this person of sin in your witness. But it's our intercession and our evangelism primarily. God allows us to join with him in praying for the lost, praying for the ministry of the Holy Spirit by praying for the lost. It doesn't make it more powerful. It doesn't make it more effective, but it, that's how he allows us to join in with him, praying for the lost. And so some of us can think of our lost husband or wife or children or family or, or friend or neighbor. And so I believe what God would have us to do to join with the Holy Spirit in convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment is to pray for that person, to live a bold display of, of what it is to be spirit-filled and what it is to be led by Christ and what it is to be a redeemed person in front of them. So we're not making harder work for the Spirit. In essence, some of this, what it looks like is for some of us to quit being so stinking hypocritical, being such a good person on Sunday and a terrible person on Monday. Being such a patient, patient person on Sunday and such a quick-tempered person on Monday. 
Be a person who wants nothing to do with religion or Jesus six days a week, but on that seventh day, hearts only to God. <laughs> right? And so your vocabulary changes, your demeanor changes, and your driving changes once you hit the parking lot. Let us live a testimony that accords with the witness of the Holy Spirit, not that contradicts the witness of the Holy Spirit. So what do you do as Christians in terms of his ministry to us? We need to be those who hear from his word, and we need to be cultivating a life of Holy Spirit dependence. And what this looks like for most of us is we've got to learn to get quiet and stay quiet. If your time spent in prayer and meditation, so reading God's word and then quietly thinking about it, if that's just all you talking and writing notes and talking and writing notes and thinking about all the people you're going to talk to about it later, these are good things, but, but what you need to add is a component of silence. And let me just give you a, if this is not something you've tried before, aim for 30 seconds. This may seem like an exceedingly low bar, but 30 seconds not talking, 30 seconds not writing, 30 seconds not thinking, 30 seconds waiting. Just say, God, I want to hear from you. I've read your word. I've prayed. I want to hear from you. I want you to guide me. I want you to direct me. We need to cultivate a life of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And for some of us, we know desperately right now what the Holy Spirit is calling us to. But we know that if we're to step out in faith and take this step of obedience, it's going to strip away the safety nets that we've created for ourselves. And this is what I would tell you. Burn the nets. Cut them free. Give yourself no net. Give yourself no tether. Give yourself no safety. Let him be your provision. If you know today the next steps of what God is calling you to, but you are not following through, you're being disobedient. Burn the net. And I think the most difficult thing is, is the third one. In a community with so many churches, we have so many different opportunities to be involved and invested in making them great churches, not competing with one another. But if we're going to be serious about displaying the inner harmony of the Trinity, then we need to mirror the harmony of the Trinity. And the church is its body. So we need to do that here. We need to do it well not blasting our brother or sister because they're super frustrating and some of us are. Not being, being bitter and being open to one another, being quick to forgive even if people don't admit they're wrong. And having that kind of inner harmony that it is beautiful and it is attractive. We need to stick up for other churches so that when somebody says, do you know what's going on at, at this church down the road? Or do you know what's going on at that church down the road? The best thing we can possibly say is no, and I don't want to. But what we can do for that church, now that you've brought them up, is to pray for their pastor and to pray for their people. And we would put an end, we could begin to put an end to church rivalry and jealousy and sheep swapping and stealing and, and whatever we want to call this, this messed up thing that we've created. We can do this. 
we begin to pray for them and be more concerned for their growth, for their health, for their vitality, than us being more uh, prominent or larger or, or whatever give you metric that you've placed your hope and value on. Amen? Man. I hope the Holy Spirit grabs a hold of you. I hope he grabs a hold of us and all the various churches of our community and transforms us and makes us into something completely unrecognizable from where we are today because he's brought us such growth, internal growth, growth of character, growth and dependence upon him. Would you join with me as we pray for God's movement, for his direction, and for his indwelling? Father, we come to you and are just thankful that you give us an opportunity to respond to your word, to respond to your spirit. God, you did not leave us wandering aimlessly, but you have given us the indwelling of your powerful spirit. You've called us to be faithful to you as we are dependent upon your spirit. So God, I pray that you would create a keen awareness <clears throat> within us for what it would look like for us as an individual to be more dependent upon your spirit. For what it would look like for our families to be more dependent upon your spirit. For what it would look like for us as a church to be more dependent upon your spirit. And for what it would look like for our community, if the various churches of our community would recognize that we're all indwelt by the same spirit. We who are many are one. Father God, I pray for uh, the person who's yet to respond to you, that they would recognize the movement of your spirit, that any interest or inclination or leaning in them towards you is the work of your spirit. You're invested in them. You love them and you're showing them that. God, that you would convict them concerning their sin, their failure to believe in Jesus. That you would convict them concerning their failure to live righteously, but Jesus' perfection and faithful living being the manifestation, the personification of righteousness. God, that they would escape the judgment and turn to Jesus, crying out for salvation in his name. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.